You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks and welcome to episode 111 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host Bart Bouchotte and this is the show for December 2022. So this is a solo show and arguably it's a listener question show uh, but it's from friend of the show Alison Sheridan and I'll be honest she didn't actually go to the website and go to let's-talk.ie forward slash photo queue and submit her question. She just kind of asked me because well we chat regularly. Uh, anyway I've Dedicated this show to answering a very, very simple question from Alison. Uh, why 35mm? What is it about that number that has made it such a big deal in photography? And why is it still so important in the world of digital photography, which has nothing to do with 35mm film? Well, the TLDR version is, uh, it's a pure accident of history. There is absolutely no logical reason why 35mm should be anything in any way important whatsoever, especially in the digital age. But of course, the actual story is way more fun than that, uh, because it lets us join the dots from Thomas Edison up to the latest digital cameras. And along the way, we get to talk about some uh, photographic jargon that we should all be aware of. Uh, Things like full frame, crop factor, and effective focal length, or EFL. So let's start our story with Edison Kodak and the invention of the movies. So the still camera, dating from 1839, comes well before the first movie cameras were invented. Um, Given that a single exposure took 20 minutes, you you know, that would give you fractions of a frame per second instead of many frames per second. So it clearly wasn't practical to, to make movies in the early days. But when it did become practical, make movies, it actually triggered a photographic revolution that really was the 35mm film format. So that's kind of interesting. Um, And the actual detail is complicated and there's lots of subtlety to it, but I'm just going to give you a big picture view. Uh, And I'm going to start our origin story um, with a film format that comes from the meeting of two giants, Thomas Edison and the Eastman Kodak Company. So Kodak were world leaders in creating flexible celluloid photographic film. And Edison was busy trying to invent the movies. And so that means Edison was interested in flexible film he could roll up into his cameras. And Kodak were busy mass producing 70 millimeter strips of film. So 70 millimeter film was cheap and ubiquitous. And flexible, and all the things Edison wanted, apart from the fact that it was too big for Edison's movie cameras. Uh, But it turns out there's a very simple solution to that problem, and uh, engineer William Kennedy Dixon, who worked for the Edison company, had the genius idea of simply taking the 70mm film from Kodak and cutting it in half lengthways, and then sticking the two ends together to make a longer strip a film that was half the height. So what do you get when you half 70mm? You get the now infamous, or famous, not infamous, actually famous, 35mm format. Now, if you have 
35 millimeter wide strips of smooth film and you try to run those through a movie camera at a regular interval that you can get, you know, because to get a movie that looks realistic, you need to have very constant exposure, 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 exposure. They need to be exactly the same amount of time apart so that you get a smooth capture of of the motion. So you need a really good way to drive the film reliably through the camera. And the way that Edison did that was by adding square perforations along both sides of the film and they would mesh with cogs inside the camera and that would drive the film through the camera extremely reliably. So that gives us that iconic look of the the strip with the holes down each side, right? So if you take a 35 millimeter strip of film and then you punch holes down the two sides, you're not left with 35 millimeter negatives. What you're actually left with is a frame size on 35 millimeter movie film of 24 millimeters by 18 millimeters, which gives us the very popular four to three aspect ratio iPhones still use to this day. So we now have 35 millimeter movie film, right? So Edison took 70 millimeter still film, turned it into 35 millimeter movie film, and now we get to go full circle again and we get to go back to still cameras. So this is where another icon of the photographic world comes into the picture, the Leica Camera Company. So 35mm came to utterly dominate the movie industry. So 35mm movie film became absolutely ubiquitous. It, It was, you know, it was cheap and it was easy to get your hands on. It was just made in vast, vast quantities to feed the movie industry. Now, there was an appetite uh, that Leica were trying to cater for, to have small portable still cameras. And Leica were not the very first to have this idea, but they were the first to make it a success. They took that ubiquitous 35mm film, film and they stuck it into what was for the time an extremely small portable and lightweight still camera. Now, they didn't use the 35mm film as it had been used in the movie cameras, they rotated it by 90 degrees. So what had been the 24mm of usable width on the movie frame became 24mm of usable height on Leica's camera, and that meant that the width could be extended uh, because you've basically had infinity at your disposal. Uh, Leica decided not to go with the 3x4, but rather to go with a wider 2x3. So they went to 24mm high by 36mm wide. And if you've ever shot uh, an SLR camera, uh, then you know that 2x3 or 3x2 is still the format we use today for SLRs. So these 35mm still cameras, they really were revolutionary. Like, they gave us entirely new styles of photography because for the time, they were really small and really portable. So they allowed, you know, early street photographers like the famous French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson to, to just start taking photographs in a way that no one had ever taken photographs before. It, it's very hard to overstate how much 35mm cameras changed the world. But uh, Kodak gets to come back into this story again. So Leica took the Kodak 35mm motion picture film and turned it into 35mm still film. Uh, But it wasn't easy to 
to load one of these early Leica cameras because you were taking movie film and trying to, you know, jury rig it into a still camera. And you needed to do this yourself. So your Leica camera would come with a little, a reusable sort of holder for the film. And you would need to go into a dark room and you would need to spool your movie film into this little reusable canister. And then you'd load that canister into the camera and then you'd be ready to go outside and start taking photographs. But you had to do all of that in the dark room because light would destroy the film. Uh, So Kodak changed all that. um, And in doing so, they kind of made possible the, the revolution that came with the viewfinders and the single reflex cameras. Uh, so rather than having to spool the film yourself in a dark room, Kodak invented reuse uh, not reusable, disposable, preloaded cassettes, as they called them, of 35mm film. So when you say to someone, Get, grab me a roll of film, that little canister thing that, that they hand you, that is what Kodak invented, their so-called cassettes. And they were 35 millimeters, but to avoid confusion, because uh, Kodak were the makers of 35 millimeter movie film, Kodak named the standard 135 millimeters. It isn't 35 millimeters, it's actually 24 by 36. And anyway, there's no 100 involved in here. Anyway, they decided to call it 135 millimeters to avoid confusion with their existing 35 millimeter film stock. So. What has become, to all of us, when I say 35mm film, we think of these little these little cassettes that you just shove into the camera. That is what Kodak invented, and that is what really allowed these small-for-the-time cameras to completely take off and to give us the, I guess, the two major formats were the rangefinders pioneered by Leica, which were the thinnest possible because you didn't have this um, reflex mirror and stuff in the way. You just basically had lens straight onto uh, photographic film. So they gave you the thinnest, smallest, most portable 35mm cameras. And, you know, Cartier-Bresson you know, made famous the Leica rangefinders. Uh, but, you know, make the camera a little bit less tiny, but still pretty darn tiny. You get your single lens reflexes as first created or sort of pioneered um, by Nikon with their F-series uh, line of bodies and then later copied by just about everyone else to give the SLR cameras that basically took over the photographic world for decades. I would actually make the argument that 35mm film as standardised by Kodak in those little loadable cassettes, they had a 60-year run. That's six decades of being, you know, pretty much synonymous with the word film. Give me a roll of film. The assumption was it was one of those Kodak-style little canisters. Now, obviously, Kodak weren't the only ones to make these little canisters, so I say Kodak-style. Agfa were the first to start making, you know, clones, I guess. But, you know, Fuji and everyone else soon followed, and it just became the format for film in the most popular shapes of camera body, which were the rangefinders and later the SLRs, really did completely take over. So Kodak had to come in and standardise what we consider today to be 35mm film. And really, that was king of the hill until the late 90s, early 2000s, when digital entered the market. And that's when our story starts to get complicated again. So literally for six decades, 35mm was the de facto standard for photography. So that allowed certain things to creep in, which are still with us now. 
So when digital came along in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was absolutely not practical to build digital sensors as big as the usable area on a 35 millimeter film. So you're 26 by 36 millimeters. Just not even vaguely affordable to make an early digital sensor of that size. So that meant that, well, they were smaller, right? So the early digital cameras were all smaller. And initially there was a lot of chaos, but eventually we settled into a new standard for your prosumer and your entry-level DSLRs, which is called the Advanced Photo System Type C, or the APS-C format. Um, if you're a Nikon person, you would be used to seeing APS-C branded as DX. So you'd have DX bodies and DX lenses from Nikon, where this APS-C format. And Canon, uh, they branded theirs EFS as the format, and the EOS range, would, so EFS lenses on EOS bodies is Canon's implementation of APS-C. Uh, if you want to get really particular, there were actually a subtle difference. So DX sensors are 23.5 by 15.6 millimeters, uh, while an EFS sensor is a little bit smaller at 22.3 millimeters by 14.9 millimeters. Now, this means that compared to your 35 millimeter film SLRs, all of your APS-C sensors are effectively cropped. So if you take a 50 meter millimeter lens and you put it in front of an APS-C sensor, you get the same perspective. So it's neither zoomed in or zoomed out. So parallel lines behave the same as you would on a 35 millimeter film camera. But the field of view is smaller because the sensor is smaller. So effectively, it's cropped off a chunk of the image. So that then resulted in photographers getting very confused because the 35mm format had been around for six decades. So mentally speaking, photographers didn't refer to the field of view by, you know, this is a 23-degree angle field of view. No, we started to think about our field of view in terms of the focal length of the lens that gave us that field of view on our 35mm lens, or sorry, our 35mm film format. So we started to think of what 50mm lenses look like and that was only possible because you had this one 35mm standard that dominated for all of those decades. Because in a world where you had many different film sizes that existed before the 1930s, and in the world we live in today where we have many different sensor sizes, the amount of millimetres your lens happens to focus to is completely unrelated to the field of view of your actual image, right? It's focal length plus sensor size equals field of view. Right, it's not actually plus, but you know, focal length combined with gives you field of view. So it's a measuring, you know, thinking of field of view in terms of millimeters is a daft idea. But because there was only the one film format for so long, it became what we did because it was easy. You take a 50 millimeter lens and you know what it does. And now you come onto these digital bodies and you take a 50 meter millimeter lens and it doesn't do that anymore. And that's very confusing. So we started to think to help people transition, particularly because your early DSLR user was an SLR user transitioning to digital. So that 50 millimeter mindset was completely and utterly ingrained, right? And the way the industry decided to help photographers over this was not to switch to talking about angles of view or anything, but was instead to start just saying to people, just think about the new digital camera as having a crop factor. And you multiply the millimeters by the crop factor to get how it behaves. 
Uh, and so this actually is kind of canon with their slightly smaller version of APS-C ended up with a really human-friendly crop factor of 1.5. So if you took your existing 50mm lens from your EFS, you know, from your 35mm Canon and you shoved it onto your EFS Canon, then you would get the same field of view as you would have had had you stuck a 75mm lens on your old SLR. That makes the math really, really easy, right? So 50 multiplied by 1.5 gives you 75. So my 50mm lens now behaves like a 75mm lens. Okay, got it. Well, this is why I'm really perplexed that just about everyone followed Nikon's lead and went with a crop factor of 1.6. So you have the Canons on their sensible 1.5 and everyone else in the DSLR market on the 1.6 pioneered uh, by Nikon, which is weird to me. So that means that if you take your 50mm lens that you were using on your Nikon F body and you stuck it onto your Nikon DX body, then you would end up with it behaving as if it was an 80mm lens instead of a 75mm lens. So these crop factors, when you multiply actual focal length by the crop factor, then you get what we started to call the effective focal length. So because, again, photographers are so used to thinking that a wide-angle lens is, is synonymous with 28mm lens, you know, your good-for-everything lens is synonymous with 50mm, your portrait lens is synonymous with 70mm, because that was how the brains worked, again, the camera companies decided to start branding lenses in terms of their effective focal length. So this behaves with the same field of view as these amount of millimetres on your old SLR camera. And that's how we say that if you have a 30 millimeter lens, it has an effective focal length of about 50 millimeters when you stick it onto a Nikon body. So we say EFL is basically the amount of millimeters it behaves like on an old 35 millimeter film body. It's kind of a bizarre way to think about things, but that is that became the way of doing it purely because photographers' brains had six decades worth of 35 millimeter film math stuck in their head. Uh, and I should say that APS-C is now being surpassed because APS-C is, it's big, right? Um, you can make much smaller, more portable cameras if you shrink things again. And so Micro Four Thirds is the new king of the hill in terms of digital cameras, particularly in the prosumer arena. And Micro Four Thirds has the very, very convenient crop factor of two. So if you take a lens with an actual focal length, 25 millimeters, it will behave like a 50 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter film body. Therefore, on your micro four thirds lens, a 25 millimeter lens, on your, sorry, on your micro four thirds body, a 25 millimeter lens has an effective focal length of 50 millimeters. Oof. Right. I've given you all of this in English, but I'm actually going to give you the math. So the actual focal length in millimeters is equal to the effective focal length in millimeters multiplied by the crop factor which is a dimensionless number, as my physics teacher would be happy to hear me say. Okay, so we have one more piece of jargon we need to revisit, which is full-frame digital sensor. So as we got better at making digital sensors, it actually became affordable to make a sensor the same size as the usable area on 35mm film. So we did. So therefore, we have ended up with 
digital cameras with a sensor the same size as the negative on 35mm film. And we call that a full frame sensor because it has a crop factor of 1, i.e. it is not cropped. The digital sensor fills the full frame of the old 35mm film exposure without any cropping. So full frame is digital version of 35mm film. And I just want to end by pointing out the absolute irony that the uh, 35mm format becoming seen as full frame is just hilarious to me because we now see a full frame digital sensor as being big, right? This is your, your, your big digital sensor. But when that 35mm format was introduced, it was scuffed. It was mocked. It was looked down upon. It was described as a toy. It was absolutely ridiculed for being this teeny tiny little sensor. Or sorry, little, teeny tiny little negative that was no good for any real photography. And now we think that exact same size is just a giant, big, massive, big, big, big full frame sensor. Uh, and I guess why why was the 35mm mocked for being tiny? And now we see it as being huge. Well, why was it mocked for being tiny? It's because in the early days of photography, you made a print through a technique that was called contact printing. So you had a negative that was usually probably on a plate of glass rather than a sheet of flexible film. And the way you made a print was that you stuck photographic paper, so light sensitive paper, behind, so you literally sandwiched it with the negative and then you shone light through it. And so the positive image on the photographic paper was exactly the same size as the negative. So if you wanted a four foot by six foot print, you needed a four foot by six foot negative, which is why those glass plates were often absolutely bloody huge. And that remained true until someone had the bright idea that instead of contact printing, you could stick a lens between the negative and the photographic paper and you could effectively magnify the negative onto the paper. And that is called a photographic enlarger. Now, the thing with enlargers is they don't only magnify the image. They will also magnify any imperfections in the image, including the film grain. And because you have light passing through a small area being stretched into a large area, the amount of light per unit area is going down. The light is being stretched, so it is dimmed. So you need to cast more of it or to have a more sensitive piece of photo paper to be able to get your print. So early enlargements were limited by the fact that the films weren't great and the photographic papers weren't that sensitive. So you couldn't do a big enlargement. It just didn't work. It resulted in an icky image. Technology moved on. And technology moved on a lot quicker than common wisdom moved on. So enlarging was scoffed at for much longer than it should have been because the technology had moved on. And the pioneers of 35mm film understood that technology had moved on. They knew that enlargers had gotten better, films had gotten more fine-grained and better, and photographic papers had become more sensitive. So it really was practical to take a 35mm film and enlarge it, sorry, a 35mm negative, and enlarge it onto a nice usable print. 
And the advantage of having a really portable camera to be able to take photographs that were just impossible with the big bulky camera, that that advantage became, you know, there was no trade-off anymore, right? You could have your small camera without having small prints because enlarging was possible. And so they knew that these teeny tiny toy negatives were not in fact teeny tiny toy negatives. And in fact that, you know, our full frame really was usable on film. And now our full frame is our giant big overkill digital sensor. Anyway, that is the story of 35 millimeter film. That's to say quite the tale, but no, there's absolutely positively no logical reason why we should be referring to lenses with, you know, how they would behave if you were to put them onto a camera that shone light onto a 35mm film frame, which is actually not 35mm, but it's actually uh, 24mm by 36mm. No, it's not logical, it's not reasonable, but hey, we're humans, we're messy, and this is where we ended up. So I'm going to draw a line under it there for today, and indeed for this year. Um, I'm recording this on the 24th of December, depending on how efficient I am at getting it out. You may or may not hear this before Christmas. If you do hear it before Christmas, and if you celebrate Christmas, I hope you have an absolutely wonderful day tomorrow. I hope you have lots of joy-filled time with friends and family. I hope you have lots of delicious food. And I hope you find the whole thing fulfillable and enjoyable. Regardless of whether or not you celebrate Christmas, I hope you all have a lovely, quiet time away from work. I hope you have a lovely New Year celebration a week from now. And I hope that uh, you all have healthy, joy-filled and productive 2023s. Um, I will, of course, say that there is a giant big thank you to everyone who has ever supported the show. You can do so by going to letsastalk.ie, where you will find these show notes written up as an English essay. Well, essay may be too strong. I've written it up in English. Um, and you will also find a section called Support the Show, where you can support the show. You can subscribe on Patreon, uh, whatever amount you pledge. That amount will be taken every time I release a podcast. Um, I release two podcasts a month, one Apple, one photography. So if you think I'm worth $2.50 per podcast episode, pledge $5, you get the idea. Uh, And of course, there's a PayPal button, which is a really efficient way of giving single larger donations. So Patreon is amazingly good for small dollar repeated payments. PayPal is good for way less frequent, but bigger payments. It's just how the fees work out. But the bigger thing is to spread the word among your friends on social media. Um, because that really helps the show to expand and reach a wider audience. Again, the show has always been and continues to be 100% listener-supported. I am extremely grateful for that. I want to thank you very much. Uh, I will say that it is a tradition every year that I send a Christmas slash New Year message to the Patreon supporters. I am in the process of writing your annual message this year, and I actually do have some substantial news to share with you about the practicalities of how the podcast is going to be run from 2023 forward. But the TLDR version, folks, is that the basically nothing changes from the outside. I'm going to keep making the show. It's going to continue to be free and is going to continue to be 100% listener supported. But for my own safety, I'm completely changing how it's all handled under the hood. Um, But as I say, details to the supporters because you guys support the show. Therefore, you guys get to have the full details from me and other people, I guess, don't. Anyway, I've rambled on for long enough. Uh, It's time for me to go and enjoy my Christmas and I hope you all do the same. So until next time, happy snapping. 
You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Yeah, I think just a straight ad, don't you? Yeah. Like what? What would we say? Like tech fan podcast uh, or? Are you are you interested in technology and gadgets? Uh huh. Do you um, want to listen to two guys who know technology and gadgets? Are we claiming to be those guys? Yes. <laughs> well, there, there we go. Are we claiming to be that be those guys? You be the judge. Tech fan podcast. No. Yeah. That'll work. Let's yeah, use that as yeah. an ad. <laughs> 